Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This episode of Into the Night was made possible by the unwavering support of our dedicated Patreon donors. Their generosity allows us to delve deeper into the mysteries that await us in the dark world of Five Nights at Freddy's. If you are captivated by the secrets we unveil and wish to be a part of our journey, we invite you to explore our Patreon page. By becoming a patron, you not only gain exclusive access to bonus content, behind-the-scenes insights, and special perks, but you also play a vital role in sustaining the future of this podcast. Visit the link provided in the description below to learn more and join our community of avid night explorers. And now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Shadow Scry, the official sister series of the End of the Night podcast. As always, I am your host, Nick, and thank you for listening. As you may have noticed from the title and thumbnail of tonight's episode, we are finally getting around to discussing the fifth book in the current Finance of Freddy's novella series, Tales from the Pizzaplex, Book 5, The Bobby Dot's Conclusion. Keen viewers may have noticed that this is a Shadow Scrying episode, and not an Into the Night episode. Well, after some consideration, I considered that our book discussions and first impression episodes don't really fit with the more story-driven and narrative production that is standard for a, well, normal Into the Night episode. So I've decided to move them into the Shadow Scrying series. The same goes for any future QA episodes as well. That way, people can be confident in what experience they'll be getting into when a new episode pops up. This goes hand in hand with our plan to eventually remaster our older episodes. Not that the episodes of 2021 are low quality, at the time I was very happy with how these episodes came out. Alright, with the exception of a select few, like the FNAF 4 episodes, those are, gar- those are garbage. But as this show has grown and my skill in audio storytelling has improved, there are issues and editing techniques that I now notice and I know I could have done to improve those episodes overall quality. So be sure to check out our Twitter or join us on our Discord or Patreon for any updates to these remastered episodes. With updates out of the way, let's get into the night and start discussing these tales from the Pizzaplex. Book 5, like all previous FNAF novella collections, is an ensemblage of three short stories with overlapping themes that conclude with an epilogue chapter that tells an ongoing stinger story throughout the book series. These stories do not, and usually will not, connect with one another and are told from different points in time across the Finance of Freddy's canon. Like previous episodes, we're going to go through each story, one by one, discussing the potential themes, lore reveals, and generally how well crafted the stories are with a review and rating at the end. A quick disclaimer, first impression episodes are spoiler free, so I will not be revealing the endings or fates of the characters within these pages. If I need to do so, in order to make a point or a massive reveal is present that warrants breaking that rule, I will be sure to mention it beforehand so you can skip it. However, an easy fix to not be spoiled is to read these stories for yourself, which I highly recommend. If you are at all disappointed with the Fazbear Fright series, I cannot stress enough how much Tales from the Pizzaplex learns from its predecessors. There are still some problematic tales. Amateur Apocalypse does give one flashback to the poor writing for a room for one more, where it's very clear that no one writing that story understood how human anatomy worked, but overall, it's evident that Scott's team of writers has improved on their craft over time and are better at filtering out some of their more ludicrous ideas. However, some things do not change and indeed do get worse, as seen with the epilogue stingers. Yes, I know the epilogue is the last story and I usually save it for the last, but I'm just going to get this one off quickly because I'm honestly getting sick and tired of them at this point. Does this have to do with anything? Tell me what's happening! Okay, okay. So, for those of you who need a refresher, the epilogue stories of Tales from the Pizzaplex involves a troop of rowdy, stereotypical, young adult tropes 
who you wouldn't be surprised to see in an 80s horror movie, which to the book's credit, the story may have been inspired by and attempted to mimic these movies. The epilogue story involves these characters in a constant game of cat and mouse with a homicidal animatronic endoskeleton, known as the Mimic. Every story involves them learning a bit more about their surroundings and the Mimic itself. And in every epilogue, one or two of the teenagers die in a gruesome fashion at the hands of the Mimic or the building they are trapped in. Beyond the fact that the epilogue setting is now the burned and decrepit remains of Freddy Fazbear's Pizza Place, aka the facade location built by Henry and Michael in Finance Freddy 6, which is genuinely cool, nothing interesting ever really happens within the epilogue pages. Sure, we learn more about the Mimic, who we soon discover is a major character in the new era of the games, but it is all information we can already gather from the different novellas themselves, novellas that explain how the Mimic behaves and what makes it tick far better and much faster than the epilogue series does. It's honestly sad, because the opening story of the epilogue series is great. Watching the various construction workers building the scaffolding and skeleton of the Mega Pizzaplex and beginning the renovations and alterations to the Fnatic's location is great to see. They set up a grand mystery by having something strange and unnatural occur, leading to multiple deaths of the construction workers and those who did survive attempt to save themselves by sealing the entire building in cement. The opening is really well done, and even involves one of my favorite uses of the novellas, which is seeing more of the world of FNAF through the eyes of the Fazbear Entertainment employees. It even gives some nice backstory to the Pizza Place's construction and aids in explaining what occurred to Freddy Fazbear's Pizza Place after FNAF 6. Even sealing the building up with concrete serves a nice dual purpose, both to give a nice in-universe explanation for why Fastman or Tim hid this particular corner of Freddy's lore from the public, in a way that also allows them to get off with it scot-free, since it was surprisingly this time not their fault for this occurring, as well as referencing the original non-canon novel trilogy, in which the original Freddy Fazbear's pizza was sealed behind the walls of an unfinished mall. But the story progresses so slowly, and the characters are, well... Forspoken. Destruction and corruption are forms of creation in themselves. Wow. You sound like a serial killer. What? Destruction and corruption are beautiful forms of creation in themselves. I don't sound like that. You absolutely sound like that. No, no, you absolutely sound like that. Yeah, see? Two can play at that game. You're f***ing stupid. I'm not sure if this was once again an attempt to mimic old campy horror films, but every character in this teenage collection of prepubescent hormones is just an absolutely horrible individual. There are times when characters have their current romantic interests die, and in the next epilogue chapter, they are immediately now romantically interested in another person. Several times, the characters show an inability to work together, and sometimes even abandon each other to save themselves. These character traits can work in other stories, but when you combine them with a slow plot, it makes the whole experience a lot rougher than it really had to be. In full disclosure, I do not like the Stitch Race Stingers. In the Fazbear Fright Collection, I do not like them. Don't misconstrue though, I love the concept of an ongoing overarching narrative for the book series. But the Stitch Race Stingers fell into a trap of focusing too little on the initial character we were introduced to, Everett Larson, who was a detective and it focused way too much on the mystery of the Stitch Wraith. The mystery of what that entity is disappears by, I believe, book number three, where we learn of its origin and who it is, and we don't catch back up with Everett Larson until book five or six. It ruins the mystery by revealing what the Stitch Wraith is early on, so a lot of the motivation to continue reading the story goes away, which is an absolute tragedy. A detective or police angle has always been a fun idea that the wider FNAF community has always toyed around with in the early days. Sure, we all know the beams of the series. The police are stupid and seem to be unable to achieve anything in the FNAF world, yes I know. But this story would have been a great avenue to curb that perception, while also scratching that narrative itch in the community we have felt even back in 2015. But, credit where credit is due, the plot of the Stitch Race Stingers was consistently moving. You weren't just learning more about the Stitch Wraith, actions taken by both human and animatronic characters that impacted the plot and world 
were happening every epilogue. Compare this to the Mimic Stingers, where at the end of every Tales book, I am begging, begging, for the Mimic to finally kill all these teenagers, because perhaps something of interest might finally come from the next book entry. And I do not think this series was trying to mimic the gore show era of campy horror films where you're rooting for the slasher villains such as Jason Voorhees or Freddy Krueger to kill a bunch of random people in a variety of brutal and creative ways. I should never, in your horror story, be rooting for every single character to be killed off. Now, with all that said, I still think you should give the book a try. If you like any of the stories we will go through tonight, know I will be only scratching the surface of them. There is more to explore by reading the books themselves. Yes, the epilogues, in my opinion, are bad, but those are only one-fourth of the total book. Not even, given that they only last about 10 to 15 pages, compared to the usual length of the novella tales, which is about 70 to 80 pages. This is more like 116. And don't let my rant confuse you. Tales is still a marked improvement over the previous FNAF book projects, and the go-to series for people wanting to get into the franchise without having to play the games. Alright, with the epilogues covered and done with, let's get to the actual meat of this book. The novellas. Book number 5 is unique in that the titular story, The Babadat's Conclusion, is the first ever two-part novella story FNAF has ever done, requiring the previous book, number 4, Submechnophobia, to fully comprehend the larger plot involved in this story. The other two tales contained within book number 5 are the typical standalones. However, these stories are also surprisingly controversial. The pair is known as GGY and The Storyteller, and these stories did a number on the fandom by both confirming some theories and disconfirming others. Without spoiling a twist near the end of the tale, GGY is also another first for the series, as it is the first novella to use a human character from the games and have them appear in the novellas, not counting William Afton. Now, personally, I love this direction for the series, because this was a major criticism of the Fazbear Fright books. While it is cool, they experimented and did their own things. It was rather annoying that none of the characters from the actual games ever played a part in them. How could they when they take place in an alternate timeline? So characters like Michael, Elizabeth slash Baby, Charlotte slash The Puppet, or Henry never appeared instead always had surrogates who symbolized them and metaphorical stories that parallel what may have really happened or may or may not have happened or it could all be red herrings and yada 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 yada. When the series did use pre-established characters, however, in the Fazbear Frights, and did so in a way that didn't contradict them and their game kid and counterpart, let me tell you, you often got some really good storylines out of that. There is a reason why I, amongst many other people, rank Count the Ways as the GOAT of the Fazbear Fright series. It uses a previously established character, Fudd Freddy, in a way that feels one-to-one -one with his game counterpart and adds a lot of depth to him, while still having that classic FNAF horror, humor, and charm to it all. I also include coming home in this S-tier novella ranking as well, to the story adding depth to Susie slash Chica, as well as tackling an aspect of the world that isn't usually covered, which was the ramifications of William's murder spree as it came to the families who lost their young sons or daughters. We usually skip that in the games. We actually get it as a focal point in that story, which is really interesting to see and adds that overall, you know, impact of what William's actions really caused. The only problem that Count the Ways of Coming Home have in their stories is that they're non-canon due to being in Fazbear Fright, because it once again exists in an alternate universe. Now, this discussion on AUs and mainline canon is also where the controversy within GGY the Storyteller also comes into fruition. So, just recently, Matthew Patrick of Game Theory, one of the biggest FNAF theorists ever, just dropped a new theory that has sparked a good amount of backlash online, or at least it did while writing the script. Now, surprise, surprise, Twitter communities are going to be toxic to thunk it. But while I may have had my disagreements with Matt Pat's theories, and I truly respect the guy and I think he really does enjoy the series a whole lot, I cannot deny his recent video is full of multiple inaccuracies. And I think most of it is founded on his insistence that Gregory is a robotic doppelganger, which, okay, look, for all those who believe this, can we please recall back in 2018 when The Fourth Closet was released, the book that introduced the idea where 
Henry can create robotic replicas that look like humans in the non-canon novel trilogy. Okay, so can we please all recall how the FNAF community, practically universally, laughed at this idea, openly calling it a jump-the-shark moment and Scott going too far with his sci-fi ideas in the FNAF universe. The only other time this has ever been tried again and converted to canon was in Help Wanted the novella, where the concept of robotic doppelgangers was used much more effectively in a close-up environment, but beyond that, if an idea is so frowned upon and made fun of in the community, why would Scott use it again as a mainline plot element? But that's not the big issue. MatPat's biggest mistake in his newest video was misinterpreting the current debate on the canacity of the books. See, within Tales from the Pizzaplex now being canon, and that being universally accepted for the most part, a debate has now sprung where people are arguing that it could be possible that all the Fazbear Fright novellas are canon along with it, and there's even a subset who believe the novel trilogy also goes along with that. There's no debate if Tales exist in the same universe as the games. Those are now indistinguishable because their events coincide with one another too much. And this is why I think the thought process of Matt Pesley's video is somewhat off. Because he believes that the stories that are still being told are metaphors and parallels for what happened in the universe of the games, he begins to make some really wild conclusions in his theory. Some of which, once again, nothing but love to MatPat, does feel derived from a defensive stance on his most recent timeline video. Now, I'm not addressing this to dunk on MatPat, obviously. I'm addressing this to bring up the fact that FNAF has a terrible communication problem. Fazbear Fright being non-canon, and Tails being canned to the games is explained nowhere. You just have to figure that out on your own. And this is made even more confusing when on the back of every one of these books, they claim that, quote, contained within are three sinister novella-linked tales from the uncharted corners of the series canon, end quote. Uncharted corners of the series canon? Can someone please explain to me what the hell does that mean? That is so vague. So I can't really blame Matt for his current theory, for the most part. I can definitely criticize him for his timeline, oh yes. But it's no wonder why GGY and the Storyteller are controversial to the wider FNAF fan base. Because they not only A, provide an insane amount of lore that was needed to understand Security Breach, which in itself is another problem we'll get into, but they also B, were contained within books that just too years ago were agreed to be universally agreed to be a medium which all events that take place in it are within an alternate universe to have a brand new series without any form of fanfare announcement or confirmation of any kind that informs readers what is and isn't canon how could this not lead to a massive amount of debates fueled by a collective cauldron of mass confusion Confusion that I do not want to creep into my series and into our book and game discussions, which is why I want to address this before we got into our lore discussions on the newest book. So, as it currently stands, in my personal conclusion, I believe Fazbear Frights and the novel trilogy are not canon and do not take place within the main canon timeline. They are AU storylines with the novel trilogy being a what-if version of main series events and the Fazbear Fright universe being more of a beta test run for experimental ideas and storytelling techniques that will later be refined and fully developed in the Tales series. The Tales of the Pizzaplex books are canon, however, and are attempting to deepen the complexity of the lore and world without overcomplicating it. This is why the last episode of Into the Night, part three of our Security Breach audiobook series, was about the help-wanted novella. I plan to include more of these tales within the series, as they are basically a requirement to fully comprehend what is going on in the games as a result of, unfortunately, Security Breach's rushed launch date, lackluster storyline, and flawed role building. Now, do I like this change to the series? Yes and no. I am happy that the books are canon to the main storyline, yes, absolutely. It was an unnecessary complication that only created issues that got in the way of telling compelling narratives. After all, wh why would you care about what happens in a random collection of stories if you knew that what took place didn't affect the world the series took place in, just one that looked slightly similar to it? However, I do believe what Tales is doing on lore is an overcorrection on Scott's part. I don't think it is unfair stance to take by claiming that one shouldn't have to buy over $100 worth of reading material to understand what is going on in a $30 video game. 
And if I hated leaving the game of, let's take Destiny, for example, and going into the Grimoire to learn what factions were and what exhibition is required to understand the current setting, why would I not criticize Scott's choice with Security Breach when it does the exact same thing, but arguably worse because this is a book series, and it's a book series in which I have to buy every release because, after all, I never know what important piece of Security Breach's story wasn't included in the main game instead of hidden between these pages. So I'm incentivized, almost I'd argue manipulated, to buy them all. I think that is heavily anti-consumer. And I do not think that was Scott's intention. Once again, Secure Breach had a rushed launch date, over-ambitious ideas, and a flawed development cycle. Not to mention, caught in between the lockdowns of 2021, forcing Steelwood to work on everything remotely. My criticisms, however, still stand, and I do not want to see this ever happen again in Finance at Freddy's. The game should be able to stand by themselves, and the books should be able to, to accomplish this as well. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. All right. With all of that out of the way, let's finally get into discussing the tale stories, starting with GGY. Such a sore loser. You're a cheater. Stop. I've <laughs> played this game a thousand times and I've never seen that much score before. You've never played. My dad works at Nintendo. GGY, the first novella in book number five, is our lower novella for the book. GGY takes place a few months after the Freddy Fazbear Mega Pizzaplex has opened its doors. Our point of view character, Tony, a middle schooler who desires to be a reporter one day, is looking into the mystery of who is behind various high scores in the Pizzaplex. Someone who goes by the initials GGY has claimed first place in various arcade cabinets throughout the Pizzaplex with unbeatable, possibly even unobtainable, high scores. However, as he starts to dig deeper, he has the uncanny feeling that Pizzaplex animatronics are beginning to stalk him. Now, GGY is a mystery at its heart. And in fact, I'd argue it takes various cues from old noir detective stories. The opening of the story on the surface is Tony internally monologuing to himself in his boring English classroom, but combines narration with the dreary rain outside and his tragic backstory involving his father in crime, and you have all the makings of a classic noir detective intro. We even have the cliche of characters telling Tony to keep his nose out of the mystery, as his curiosity could get him in trouble, or worse, killed. Rain also plays a recurring aspect throughout the story that adds to the mysterious atmosphere. At one point in the story, Tony talks to a lead at his school's football field at night, and here, just, just listen to this over-theatrical description. Quote, Tonight, the hundred yards of artificial turf, barely illuminated by a few weak security lights at the edges, look like a vast pool of murky water, or maybe quicksand. Tony felt like if he were to step out onto that field, it would suck him down into it, pulling him out of his reality and into another one. End quote. When Tony eventually talks to his lead, the entire route is also evocative of a back alley conversation under the cover of night. Just swap out the alley for underneath some school bleachers and it all works out. There are all other examples of this happening across the book, the principal is described as a mafia goon, the way Tony talks to encampses his witnesses, and even his extra-legal ways of investigation that are reminiscent of stories of the hardball detective who doesn't always play by the rules. And as a fan of old-school noir flicks, as well as a big fan of classic detective characters such as my personal favorite Columbo, I do appreciate that the writer for this story, Andrea Wagner, tried her best to incorporate as many of these classical tropes that she could without making it too obvious. This is also, however, where my complaints about the story comes from as well. The biggest problem with GGY is in the character of Tony. Not that he is poorly written, his character and personality are great, but the fact that he is a middle schooler who is uncovering this massive conspiracy is a bit of a stretch, and because the character is so young, it changes how he gets some of his information and his interactions with the characters. So, think of it this way. The amount of times in the story where he is on a time clock and has to look for information, but just so happens to get lucky and find out on his third or fifth try 
is incredibly convenient. Because the writer wants Tony to get his information, but consequently, having a kid character be your detective POV in a world that, for the most part, mimics ours, it causes issues with how he can go about achieving this. If Tony was a real and older undercover detective, we could have simply seen him go undercover and research these documents on a work computer and wouldn't question how fast he got them because we would know that he would eventually find what he was looking for if he only needed to access, in the case of GGY, an employee database. Now, if the information he was looking for wasn't there, then we now have more intrigue into the mystery. Because this is exactly what happens in the Storyteller and the Bobby Dots conclusion. Stories that involve adult Fazbear employees or Fazbear entrepreneurs who look into the goings-on of the company, but end up not finding the information they're looking for in the normal databases and have to find clever solutions around it. Tony's age also affects the characters he can interact with as well. Sure, his butting heads with his friends and fellow classmates are perfectly in line with his character, and Tony asking random questions at an arcadic attendant who is affable and loquacious is also fairly reasonable. But the later half of the story is when the problems start to appear. So remember when I talked about that lead scene earlier, the one at night at the football field? So I forgot to mention that his lead was a high school girl who was very affluent in hacking, right? Okay, bear with me. And has even hacked into the glam rock animatronics before just to see how they operated. So I don't need to tell you that that is really stupid and makes Phasma Entertainment look incredibly dumb. Say what you will about Phasma Entertainment. Yes, they are cartoonishly corrupt and morally bankrupt in more ways than one. But a child, a high school student, if you want to take it that way, being able to hack into their robot security networks, that is honestly laughable. And it feels like something Brooklyn Nine-Nine would do if they ever introduced a hacking character, someone who's like super young and like 16 years old, but somehow has fast hacking knowledge. It doesn't work when you're trying to mimic the real world one-to-one, and for the most part, FNAF tries to do that in the books. There's even, I'd argue, kind of a world-building issue that presents itself near the end of the story as well. So like, without getting into spoilers about GGY and the mystery and who is GGY, we discovered that several people have recently gone missing and were connected to GGY in some way. All of them were school counselors. And the only other connection between the victims was that they all worked at the same school. So with that knowledge in mind, you would think that this issue would be brought up at Tony's school more often. And not even just a school, but around the town of Hurricane in general. Also, given the identity of GGY, it really begs the question of how they've been able to get away with this for so long, given... What we know about the disappearance is like they were all at the same school. How are cops and detectives not investigating the school like 24-7 and checking every security camera for any type of nefarious activity? Now, this is not to say that it breaks the story or makes it unreadable. On its own, the story is perfectly adequate. I enjoyed the fact that we got to see more of the Pizzaplex during the day. Uh, specifically, in this story, we got to see the Fast King as well as seeing more of how the Pizzaplex works and operates with the employee passes and badge systems. It's exposition I wish existed in an actual security picture game, sure, but for what we get here, it's clear from these stories that the attention to detail was paramount when writing these tales to make the Pizzaplex feel more real despite its grandiose and dreamlike aesthetics. And I also love the fact that GGY having incredible high scores without the Pizzaplex isn't something the book is making up. If you boot up Security Breach right now, or even during its launch day, Across various arcade cabinets, you can spot the initials GGY displayed prominently in first place with scores higher than everybody else on the leaderboards by the stratosphere. I appreciate those little details because it helps make the world of the books and games feel intertwined, and it's those little things that show that the developers and writers and creators, they all cared about their work, right? It was clearly that artists cared about the project. And speaking of which, we should probably get talking about that lore reveal. So this will involve some slight spoilers, so I highly encourage those who wish to remain spoiler-free to skip ahead, as we will be talking about the implications of this twist and what it means for the story of Security Breach and the lore moving forward. Skip about five minutes ahead, and you might get to where we're talking about the storyteller. So, everyone ready? Who wants to see spoilers, or who has already know that the story's going to happen? Everyone ready? Okay. So, the big twist of GGY is that the culprit behind the high scores, the animatronic's weird behavior, and the disappearances of the various faculty of Tony's schools was none other than... Gregory, from Security Breach. 
or was. So you see, this twist in the story makes it clear that Gregory is behind all these deeds. However, I also don't think it is that simple. It never is with FNAF. It appears, as presented by G.G. Wine's Secure Breach, that Gregory was, in fact, possessed by Glitztrap and had become infected by him. As we will see with Vanity and Secure Breach, your personality and free will drastically shift once you have the virus in your mind. In case of Gregory, during the book, there are scenes we see him spout some rather strange philosophical quotes, uh, something we never see him do in the actual game Secure Breach, and they're very intelligent, and even Tony mentions how it seems like it's far beyond his age for him to say things like this. And we also see Gregory associate himself with rabbits through his pen name, Dr. Rabbits or Rab, when they're writing their English project, which Tony uses throughout the story up until the very end, which further implies Gregory has some connection with Glitchtrap, but at the very least some connection with Afton. So given the plot of Security Breach, we now know why Gregory's situation was not exposited at any point in the game. It was most likely meant to be a late-game twist that Gregory had been infected with Glitchtrap in the same way that Vanny had been, but unfortunately it had to be cut for development time. Vanny and the animatronics hunting him down seem to be a result of Gregory, in one way or another, breaking free of Glitchtrap's control and attempting to escape the Pizzaplex. How much he can recall from his time being infected is unknown, if he even recalls anything at all, and if Gregory being trapped beneath the Pizzaplex in Trails of Ruin doesn't end up being a twist, I highly expect it to be a major plot point in the upcoming Ruin DLC releasing this July. Now, I also appreciate this does confirm indirectly that Gregory is human. He grew up with a loving family and went to school before Security Breach. So, Gregory's robot theory is dead now. That's... That's dubs. This story also, indirectly, confirms that Gregory is the character known as Patient 46 from the Security Breach cassette tapes found during the endgame. Hey, you ready for another rant? So, first off, why and how Gregory is getting the same level of psychological treatment by the same therapist as Vanessa is, yeah, no sugarcoating it. That's a massive plot hole at best, and once again, stupid at worst. This doesn't really fix the problem of the patient records and Security Breach. They're still pretty pointless and a terrible storytelling tool. Maybe if they were spread across the game naturally, a la Batman Arkham games. Instead of being restricted to a Freddy upgrade only available in the endgame, maybe the tapes would have worked better. But as it stands, the logs still remain its midnight motorist tier of pointless information meant to just confuse the fanbase for no other reason just to confuse us. Arguably, it's worse now as the point of the tapes is solved and the end result is that they are completely superfluous now. I mean, the point of these tapes is to confirm Gregory is patient 46 and therefore infected by a glitch trap, right? We can all agree with that. So what's the point of these tapes if you need to read GGY to understand their context and GGY confirms by itself that Gregory is possessed by glitch trap? So the tapes just don't feel necessary at this point beyond Vanny getting some more characterization, but... Then again, due to Security Breach's gameplay and storytelling, Fanny becomes kind of a pointless character by the end of it, so why would I care about learning more about her? Alright. End of spoilers. So, in conclusion, I think GGY is another good entry for the Tales of the Pizzaplex. But it's only that good. It's better than Fazbear Fright, sure, and it could have been improved in a few areas, and it could have been split maybe into two parts to get of its concept. Uh, but... Tony is a great character, and I do love detective stories, especially those that invoke old noir tropes. Uh, the lore reveal of GGY is fun, and serves as a turning point for the understanding of Security Breach. Um, yeah, it's kind of good. It's average. GGY gets a 5 out of 10 for me. It's an average FNAF novella. There's not much horror. There's not too much drama. It kind of concludes with the mystery being solved for Tony, but at the very least, we conclude it for ourselves. Yeah, I wish it could have been better, but that's kind of how it goes. Now, if you want actually intrigue and a compelling mystery in your FNAF novellas, let's talk to the storyteller, a.k.a. ChatGPT the horror flick. So I'm a human. That's AI. That AI doesn't complain. Complain? Oh, this boss is so annoying. Look at all these complaints. More pain. The storyteller is up next, our Pizzaplex-centric tale in this book, as well as my personal favorite in the bundle. Stories where we get the perspective of the Fazbear Entertainment world for the pair of eyes of an employee of the company usually end up being some of my highest rated stories in the Tale series, as well as the Fazbear Fright series when it occasionally happens. So you can imagine my excitement when the storyteller pulls the curtain back on Fazbear Entertainment even further, so we can see the characters that make up the corporate side of the Fazbear Entertainment, 
the board of Fazbear Entertainment are the characters in this story. The closest we've ever gotten to see this part of the Finance Freeze world was at the beginning of Sister Location, where the board of investors of Athen Robotics are interviewing, or more accurately interrogating, William Afton over the design of the Funtime animatronics. But that was only for a few lines, and a cutscene that lasts roughly a minute, so it's nice to see this idea expanded upon in the books. The storyteller is primarily told through two characters' point of view. The current CEO of Fazbear Entertainment, Mr. Burroughs, and an advisor to the board known as Edwin Murray. So Murray is an interesting character. His story begins all the way back in the 1980s of Fazbear Entertainment's glory days. He once owned an electronics company that was bought out by Fazbear Entertainment. Now, given his talent in electronics and robotics, as well as the time period when his buyout occurred, if I recall correctly, I hazard a guess that Edwin was hired by Fazbear Entertainment or bought out because it was their attempt to replace Henry and William's mechanical geniuses once the former had more than likely left the company after the death of Charlotte, and the prior being, well, you know, a serial killer of children. Remember William Henry along with their relationship, by the way, as we continue our discussion. It'll be important for later. Now, Edwin is in stark contrast to Mr. Burroughs, whose first name we are never told, as Burroughs prefers the people to use his last name as it gives him a sense of superiority. This is extended, by the way, even into his inner thoughts, as the third-person narration always refers to him as Mr. Burroughs, even when the story is from his perspective. He is young, graduating college at the age of 13, and is the youngest CEO in Fast Entertainment's long history. However, his perfect run as CEO is put in jeopardy when he discovers that the latest endeavor of Fast Entertainment, that being the Freddy Fazbear Mega Pizzaplex, is currently in the red on profits. Mr. Burroughs is chagrined to hear this, but eventually comes up with a solution. The creative team for the storylines and script writing for all the Fast Entertainment's venues and the Amtrunks cost way more money than any other department. So the solution? Replace the entire creative department with an AI to automatically, randomly generate new scripts and stories using the pre-existing material. Yeah, this story isn't topical at all. Not only did they create this AI supercomputer within the main atrium of the Pizzaplex, you know, where the stage is, but they also constructed a gigantic yellow plastic tree to hide it from everybody in plain sight. But when this AI, which Mr. Burroughs officially named the Storyteller, finally goes live, the result is catastrophic. Now, the Pizzaplex isn't burning down to the ground, the animatronics are behaving kind of like spoiled children. Roxy is verbally abusing guests. Monty is viciously destroying Fazbear property in a fury rage. Chica's carnivorous personality becomes gluttonous as she gorges on anything edible or inedible within her vicinity, and she's yellow in this book for some reason. And even Freddy acts like a spoiled brat getting in tugs of war with children over the plush toys in his green room. It gets to a point that some children become reduced to tears as they watch the once cheerful and colorful gang of the Glamrock band turn to such rapid delinquents. Even Glamrock Freddy pouts in a corner and starts to cry because his emotions are just so rampantly out of order. Edwin Murray, as the advisor to the board, and also, as it should be, the only one of these core backrooms who actually has any inclination on how robots even work, attempts to investigate what the storyteller is currently up to. His investigation turns into his worst nightmare when he discovers that a project of his past, a past he wished he could forget, turns out to be an important part of the function of the storyteller. As we continue to see with the next tale, The Bobbycat's Conclusion, uh, book number five really enjoys the genre of mystery. Whereas GGY focuses on paying homage to noir tropes, the storyteller focuses more on modern mystery stories, the focus on corporate corruption and espionage. Now, Edwin doesn't play into the classic noir detective tropes such as Tony, but he does have that personal connection to the mystery and tragic backstory that a classic investigator archetype would have. Now, that is probably the biggest strength of the storyteller, the character of Edwin Murray. He is instantaneously empathetic and sympathetic the moment we see him. Despite being amongst other wealthy entrepreneurs of the Fazbear board, Edwin is humble and betrays himself as an average person. In a room full of suck-ups and yes-men, Edwin is the only one thinking objectively and speaks up about doing the right thing, 
both in terms of a business and moralistic standpoint. His personality is also really fun and great to be around. He reminds you of a southern grandfather figure archetype, a person who has plenty of experience under his belt, but also a lot of heart and respect for others who deserve it. He's opinionated, but doesn't like to talk down to others, and also doesn't like to be talked down to himself. In contrast, Mr. Burroughs is the perfect foil to Edwin. Before we even get Edwin's point of view, Burroughs looks across his audience of board members to gloat, but takes a moment to glare at Edwin, eternally mocking his outfit and how insane it is he can't fire him because of his 40-year-old contract. And then when we get Edwin's point of view, Edwin describes Burroughs as fake, thick-headed, boisterous, and short-sighted. Before they have even exchanged in banter, you already have a glimpse of their history and rivalry. Even their principles, when it comes to designing the decor of the building, are contrasting. Burroughs, with his executive authority, designed the place with swanky bright colors and obscene artistic renditions of the Fazbear characters. Meanwhile, Edwin thought the decor was tacky and off-putting and preferred the old vintage and more professional artworks of the 80s. Mr. Burroughs is naive and such a narcissist that he doesn't think of the big picture when it comes to his decision-making. Meanwhile, Edwin is older, wiser, and smart enough to know what does and doesn't work when it comes to a business and industry he's played a part in for decades. Also, they really don't make it hard for you to despise Mr. Burroughs. Beyond the fact that he is dismissive to Edwin and every single time he brings up a complaint or concern, he constantly complains about the most 1% of 1% problems. Things such as, oh, how taxing it is to worry about how well the business is doing while scuba diving with a supermodel in the tropics. Or lamenting on how his concern for Edwin is impending his ability to enjoy the regatta I had planned for this weekend. I don't know why I went German for his accent. He's not German at all, but whatever. Given that this is our first look at the characters who make up the leadership decision of Fast Entertainment, uh, they don't disappoint in making the egregiously run company and have leaders who could be described as the most part egregious egotists. Now, many have brought up William and Henry parallels between Edwin and Mr. Burroughs, and, and I can see why. Both Edwin and Burroughs take the typical stances that the supposed parallel would take. Edwin stands up and defends the creative team, calling them the lifeblood of the Fazbear Empire. Henry, who was more of an artist with his machines and a scholar, would probably relate to Edwin's predicament and take that stand. In contrast, William was always described as an intelligent businessman, and Burroughs also fits the description given his self-proclaimed high IQ and business acumen. Even Burroughs' name has an association with rabbits, which further implies you know, a little bit of a connection. Now, do I think this story is a parallel to William Henry 100% and doesn't, it's not canon at all, this story didn't take place? No. I think this is more to symbolize the current theme of the Steel Wool era of FNAF, and that is a theme of cycles, or as I like to take it, repetition with a difference. So, Secure Breach itself can be described in a vacuum as the culmination of events that made the storyline of FNAF, the whole storyline before it, uh, being repeated, mimicked, as it were, all over again, but with slight changes and variances and differences in a short span of time. You can all agree to that, right? So, Edwin and Burroughs fulfill their purpose in this regard by being the symbolic parallels of Henry and William, including their combined creation resulting in disastrous events moving onwards. The storyteller tree is described to also have neon-lit branches that sprout from its top and then go into the ceiling, where from there, Black wires with white stripes flow throughout the facility and into the various attractions and animatronics in between the walls, feeding them information on how to behave, almost like it has a million strings moving the various robots around like marionettes. And given its influence over the robots, could this not be seen as a repetition of when Charlie, as the puppet, gave gifts and gave life to the MCI victims, influencing the animatronics by infusing them with the souls of the dead children? Now, I'm not saying that the storyteller is Charlie slash the marionette. In fact, I am telling you right now, they are not one of the same. But it is repeating the events, repeating the cycle yet again as it were. This actually goes to support the Glamrock Freddy's Michael Abbott theory, by the way. As many point out that Gregory is similar looking to the crying child and could be seen as a surrogate for Michael's younger brother as he is currently possessing Glamrock Freddy. However, this is a repetition with a difference. This time, Michael will not let his younger brother, in this case his surrogate younger brother, be harmed and die by his hands. This time, the follower surrogate for the main villain, in the past as it was Elizabeth slash Circus Baby, 
and the present. This is now Vanessa Vanny. This time, that surrogate, that follower, can be saved if the right choices are made. This time, the animatronics are not possessed by the spirits of children, but are simply mimicking them and have the personal stability of one. There are other types of these repeat story elements being used with the twist, Blob being one of them, but you get the general idea. Repetition with the twist is the now ongoing theme for this Steel Wool era of games, at least the theme for Security Breach. And I think it'll be a theme that'll be explained in deeper context once we get to book number six, Nexi, as one of those stories will actually have us catch up with Old Edwin, and it will explain what the project was that was part of the storyteller that has him in such dire mood. Now, if I did have one criticism about the storyteller, it would be that the ending, kind of like, kind of like GGY, does feel somewhat rushed. The last ten pages are basically Burroughs exclusively, and I don't think that really works. Since we don't get to see Edwin up until the end, only up until Mr. Burroughs catches up with him again, we don't really get a good explanation for what he was doing with the storyteller in the time he was with it. It's all obfuscated, and it ends in a way that isn't satisfying for a mystery because there's no conclusion to it, really. I mean, the story concludes, sure, but the mystery and the plot and the problem and the conflict don't conclude, really. It feels like something that needs to be solved with another book, but unlike Bobby Dawes, this isn't marketed as a part one, part two. And once again, this is different than GGY, where Tony doesn't solve the mystery at the end. Like, he doesn't find out who the identity of GGY is, but we as the audience can put two and two together to come with the right conclusion, so there is that sense of finale the GGY that the storyteller is unfortunately missing. And this also goes into Edwin's past project being part of the storyteller as well, in that there's no finality to like a lingering plot element. I was waiting for a reason to be given for why Burroughs knew about Edwin's old device, as well as he how he knew it could do what he was looking for a piece of technology to do. But despite being Burroughs being a secondary character, this topic was never brought up again. Which, for me personally, kind of gave off this impression with these two plot elements, along with Gigi Y in a way. It feels like these two stories weren't fully thought out. In the case of Storyteller, they knew they wanted Edwin's past to connect to the device, sure. But they really didn't have a way to do that without having to do some intricate world building that would answer some kind of hard answer questions. Like, it all comes back to how does Phasm Entertainment come back when... Let's be honest, after FNAF 6, no one should ever bring this company back to life again. That's a question that, ever since Help Wanted, Scott and the people who help him write the story, they do not want to answer that question because it makes no sense. And any answer that isn't, has any character or story involved in it, makes no sense at all. And it will be seen as a cop-out just for this series to go forward with Fast Entertainment instead of doing something new or making a new company, yada, yada, yada. So, because they can't answer that, they, by proxy, have to keep skirting around it, which I think that's the problem with Edwin. Because if we knew more about Burroughs, and we knew more about maybe the chairman of the board, because Burroughs was just CR, we knew maybe more about the chairman, maybe then we would know more about how he knew about the storyteller device and this project that it would have made in the past. But because we can't answer that question, it's left vague and not satisfyingly vague where I get to come up with my own answer, it feels more like they were going to give me an answer, but then realized that was hard to do, so they just let it be obfuscated. How do I rank Storyteller? Um, it's highly commendable. Uh, Evan and Mr. Burroughs are well-crafted characters who provide distinct perspectives and are very entertaining. Uh, uncovering the abandoned or discarded project that make a pizza flex prior to the events of Secure Breach is always going to be fun and engaging, and really enhances the history of the Pizza Plex, makes it feel like it's more lived in, it actually has like this long past to it despite being relatively new. It's worth noting that, as you may have noticed in my earlier description of both GGY as well as the Storyteller, uh, these tales are not exactly horror stories, or even scary. Uh, with the exception of the final pages of the Storyteller, I'd argue Book 5 is relatively horror-free, uh, because the grim fate of certain characters in the end of this story is the really only thing that's kind of horror about it at all. And I don't necessarily require horror in FNAF novellas, but it's important to acknowledge that the marketing often positions them as such. So if it doesn't, you know, it doesn't pay off what it's marketing itself as, that's criticism. I had to knock off points for that. Because nobody failed to deliver a promise. So, 
final ranking, the storyteller gets a 7 out of 10 for me, which for me, that is a good story. Uh, not going to be a tale of return to reread, I think. Uh, beyond even a quote for a theory or if I make it into an Into the Night episode. But I think I'll still remember it for its witty humor and topical choice of conflict with the AI, taking over the job of writers and artists. Very topical, very funny. And overall, it is a good read. I think the best story in this book. Finally, last book. Let's talk about the Bobby Dots conclusion, aka Google Home taking over the world. Hey Siri, call us daddy. I don't see a father in your contacts. Our final story of the night, as well as our titular tale, The Bobbit's Conclusion. The first ever two-parter in the series, and surprisingly, our Fazbear Fright-esque tale for this collection. Strange considering how part one was our more lower-focused story, The Bobbit's Conclusion is rather light on lore reveals and implications compared to the behemoths that were GGY and the Storyteller. The plot continues from where the original Bobbitot tale had left off. Abe, the new team leader for the Freddy Fazbear Mega Pizza Plus 6 technical team, that is a mouthful, is currently stuck with a problem with his new apartment. As a higher up now in the Fazbear business empire, Abe gains the benefit of a paid for apartment in the Pizza Plus's neighboring Fast Towers. However, when he goes to check in, he is informed that there are no vacancies for him to take. By hacking into the apartment complex system, he was able to discover that there is one empty room for him but it is marked off as off-limits. Ignoring the clear warning signs, Abe makes a fake access card and moves in. Like all Fazbear apartments, Abe's room is not only fully furnished and state-of-the-art, but also contains virtual reality helpers in the form of the Bobby Dot home assistants. The Bobby Dots are holographic humanoids, with gray skin and wear a white and gray bell-bottom suit with a stripe in their respective theme colors, in this case those being pink, green, and blue. They have small ovals on their forehead and their color, along with their facial features and head accessories also matching that same color. At first, Abe loved his apartment and the Bobby Dots, which he named Rose, Olive, and Gemini due to the fact they were simply called 1, 2, and 3. See, before this, Abe was living on his own. As in, he was homeless, squatting inside of Roxy Raceway in a makeshift tire fort and eating the pizza thrown away in the trash for sustenance because all of his money was going towards his mother, who was going through the first stages of dementia and needed to stay in an assisted living facility to be taken care of. So having a paid-for apartment really helped with his expenses. The Bobby Dots were just simply a fun bonus to Abe. Well, that fun bonus came with some nasty problems. As he soon discovers, after several life-threatening accidents, the reason for his apartment being labeled as off-limits was due to his room still containing the first generation of Bobby Dots. See, before they were the holograms, there were the Gen 1 Bobby Dots, these abandoned decrepit beings were in fact physical robots that came out of crawl spaces in the ceiling and walls. They crawled out of these areas via long black tentacle-like tubes that came protruding from their backs and heads. Caught between financial destitution and imprisonment for breaking and entering, Abe is forced to play detective and find out how to defend or deactivate the original Gen 1 Bobby Dots before they can kill him. His only lead is to look into why and how the Gen 1s had killed their previous tenant, which led to the apartment being off-limits, and perhaps even look into why Fazbear Entertainment was hiding the Gen 1 Bobby Dots in the first place. Things get even worse when he meets a woman by the name of Sasha during one of his shifts at the Pizzaplex. Starting a romantic relationship, Abe now has a ticking clock put on him to figure out what is going on before he brings even more people into this dangerous situation he has got himself caught up in. Rounding up our mystery-themed novella collection, we started with Noir, we transition to corporate conspiracy, and we end on the most classic of detective things with none other than the murder mystery. Classic. The mystery behind the Bobby Dots is also a compelling one that takes some nice twists and turns along the way. Like all good murder mysteries, there is a nice and genuine twist and red herrings, often seen the classic whodunit. I would be lying if I didn't love this mystery more because of how much the Pizza Plex gets used in the story, however. More so than any of the tales. The Bobby Dots Part 1 and 2 use the Mega Pizzaplex far more than any other. It really highlights how massive the Pizzaplex really is. In the first part, this was often used to exposit lore about a variety of locations within the complex. In the case of Part 1, this was mainly the Superstar Daycare, alongside explaining the backstory for the daycare attendant. 
But we also got the West Arcade, also known as the Fastcade, where DJ Music Man resigned in laser tag. I really like the use of the books when it comes to exploring the world and its characters. The information presented in the novella was nothing that you needed to know to comprehend the plot of Security Breach, but it does make you appreciate the world building and how much thought and attention Scott had while working with Steel Wool. And no, that isn't me sucking up to Scott and not giving Steel Wool their fair credit. It is coming directly from Steel Wool themselves. The following is from Ray McCaffrey, an executive producer at Steel Wool. During Daku's interview with them and Jason Tabalowski, a head developer also at Steel Wool. So the um, so as we're as you know as we're building the game, uh, you know I get an email from Scott, and he says, "Hey, put this stuff in the game," and I I I, I look at it all, I, I I examine it as a producer would do, and I say, "I have no idea what any of this means." He goes, "Yeah, put it in the game. <laughs> don't worry, I I I know." <laughs> So, Scott really had all this sort of planned out. Now, how much of it was him flying the seats and how much it correlated and got uh, communicated through Secure Breach? Unsure. But, it's still very appreciative to see how much thought went into it. Part 2 of the Barbie Dop storyline continues to explore the various locations of the Pizzaplex, but I will say not as deeply as its first part. The coolest exploration part of the story is definitely when Abe explores the sewers below the Pizzaplex going beat for beat the same pathway that Gregory uses to escape from the sewers just backwards and for the perspective and how an employee we gain access to the area during the day. It was really surreal and kind of creepy when Abe was rummaging around that area whilst describing the various animatronic zombies that still remained active but in various states of decay and sentience, wandering through the massive landfill below the Pizzaplex. My favorite part of this scene is that Abe discovers Mr. Hippo down here, pretty much left to rot, but also discovers a Mr. Hippo fridge magnet beside him as well. The same type of magnet Gregory would collect and use in Security Breach. This isn't just a cute reference either. The gameplay mechanic of the magnet is used multiple times in the story, and in my opinion could have been used more. As it stands, it's pretty much only used so Abe can get out of his apartment with his holographic Bobby Dots when they you know, lock the door and stop the gin once from getting in his room, but I would have loved to see him use it in the final act of the story, make it come full circle with it. Heck, maybe even introduce it in the first part. That would have been fun. But beyond the sewers, we don't get to spend too much time with the Pizza Plex beyond a quick trip to Bonnie Bowl and Rockstar Row. Uh, not that I'm disappointed with these small excursions, but neither of these two visits ever reveal lore or history about the Mega Pizza Plex in the same way that Part 1 used these sections. Instead, and quite fairly so, the Bob Dad's conclusion prioritizes Abe and his story rather than the story of the Pizza Plex. This isn't a problem. I don't want the Tales books to be beholden to the games or their location. They can stand on their own and tell their own stories, avoid of any big lore reveals. After all, B70 is my favorite FNAF novella, and it doesn't even have to be part of Final Fantasy Freddy's world to be good. But just like Bobby Dot's conclusion, I appreciate the attention to detail in the story to make it fit in the world. The character of Abe is also, once again, fantastic. Abe is such a great character, and his predicament is immediately relatable. His hard-working attitude alongside his charitable and caring nature really makes him an underdog throughout the story that you want to root for. I also love that he is so used to the strange happens of the Pizzaplex that things like DJ Music Man, the daycare tenant, the, the animatronic zombies, strange habits, they don't phase him at all. I mean, he's still wary of them and acknowledges that they could be threats if given the chance. But he is also a veteran at this job, and therefore his experience does not even allow these opportunities to rear their heads. While I only briefly mentioned her, Sasha is also a fantastic introduction to the story and plays a really important part in it. Neither Sasha nor Abe take the limelight for one another, and while this is still Abe's story, their strengths and personality complement one another very well. With Abe's being more of a logical thinker and Sasha being the more emotional one, they work well in solving one another's problems by looking at them through the unique angles the other couldn't see. They are also, I'll just be open about that, they're really cute together, and their romance is very well written. Which, for me, is a huge praise, right? Because I find writing romantic relationships to be really difficult without coming across as sappy or too unrealistic. So getting it like done really well is an accomplishment. My criticisms for the Bobby Dot's conclusion would have to follow my previous sentiments on GGY and the storytelling on tone. This might be an advertised as, quote, once again, chilling stories that will haunt even the bravest player, unquote. None of these stories are in particular scary. The Bobby Dot's conclusion is probably the strangest in this regard, as the night sections involving the Gen 1 Bobby Dots in the first part of the story is 
really tense and disturbing in the descriptions. However, part two has a bit more involved in action. And that's something I'm not usually used to in my FNAF novellas. Now, I'm not perturbed by a change of pace for these stories. It's just weird that none of the three here fit the typical horror niche that FNAF is known for. Uh, beyond that, the story is really great. Uh, Rooks has a more uplifting resolution to the more dire and mysterious endings of the former two tales. Abe was a great character, and I honestly wouldn't mind seeing him in the games as either a human or a playable character, or just a small reference to him in the upcoming DLC. Um, yeah, I'll give the Barbados conclusion a 7 out of 10. It's really good. It delivers a great conclusion to the first two-part of an Aftervilla story ever. Uh, it's tone of themes are exactly what I'm really looking for, but overall, I'm happy I read it, and I'd probably recommend this or the storyteller. Probably this one, because it does end an actual story, but it is annoying that you have to read the first part in Subnectophobia, so be sure you read that before you pick this one up. And with that, I believe that brings us to a good stopping point for tonight's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to stay updated, please consider subscribing, following, or sharing this podcast. It truly helps us broaden our reach. Consider following us on our Twitter, at Fazbear Podcast, joining our Discord, or supporting us on our Patreon or merch store using the various links in the description below. The next episode should be episode 29, continuing our Secure Breach audiobook series, so be sure to stay tuned in for that. You will not want to miss it. I've been your host, Nick, and I'd like to thank you all once again for listening. Have a good night, and drive home safe. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.